0: Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Mike Hobbits. Uh, Dr. Hobbits is the head of School of Theology of the Laidlaw College um, in New Zealand, and uh, and it is a part of the Otago University. Uh, this conversation with Dr. Hobbits happened uh, several months ago, uh, but my computer failed and I was unable to reconstruct my own audio. So Dr. Habitz's audio works well, but mine uh, is basically lost. So I'm just going to insert my questions and give you uh, what Dr. Habitz uh, had to say in response to those questions. So if it seems a little strange, it's because it is. Um, And so I hope that the conversation, and I think the conversation is still worth listening to, uh, because uh, mostly you're here to hear from Dr. Habitz more than you're here to You know, you come to this podcast to listen to me. Uh, So hopefully my questions are illuminating, uh, but but you will learn a lot from uh, Dr. Habitz. And so I appreciate his time. And I'm sorry for the delay in the episodes. There have been uh, lots of different things going on in my own life, um, from uh, the computer that I was using, crashing to having covid uh and uh you know just any number of other things uh but excuses aside i'm going to try to get this podcast out and i hope that you will enjoy uh this conversation we you know we will still be recording more we have recorded some um and i hope to start getting the pumping those back out here shortly uh so i appreciate your forbearance um as this podcast is a little different and um thanks for listening
1: yeah so uh mike mike harbert it's a- yeah my my dad's Dutch so yeah 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 dad dad immigrated yep yep his family when uh, they were young uh direct from Holland yep and then my wife's uh, my wife my mother's um Scottish so yeah, Dutch and Scottish ancestry and but we call ourselves yeah we're New Zealanders, so we're we're Kiwis after our flightless blind bird <laughs> it's pretty pretty apt symbol for our our country really. <laughs> But yeah, Mike,
0: Mike, Mike Um, So, Dr. Habitz, can you tell us a little bit about what it, what theosis actually means?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Theosis, simply that Greek term, um, which means um, combination of um, theosis and poieo, theopoiesis, making one into a god or becoming god, which in a in a non-Christian sense, is blasphemous, <laughs> uh, idolatry that we would make ourselves into literally God. When it's used in Christian discourse, right from the very earliest followers of Jesus, and even in scripture itself, where it talks about um, humans being gods, it's always lowercase gods. It's becoming, uh, we would say, like God, and it's participating somehow in God's attributes. So I guess at its most basic Theosis could be defined as the human creature's graced participation in the Trinitarian life as they are united to Christ, the incarnate Son, and full of the Spirit. There are fuller definitions of that, of course, but that's probably the most basic of theosis in in Christian discourse. There's always this um, very clear um, qualification when Christians use theosis, deification, divinization, the Latin terms, that we're always maintaining the creator-creature distinction. We're never wanting to collapse that as, as non-Christians do. They collapse the two. So I literally, you know, Father, Son, Spirit, and Mike. <laughs> uh, again, that's blasphemous for Christians, and we're not saying that, and the early church wasn't saying that. Um, they're saying that the what we might say the communicable attributes of God, Those those idioms or attributes that God has that a human creature can have, they are imparted somehow by grace so that the human is, is changed, um, is transformed. So we're not talking here about the incommunicable attribute of, say, omnipresence, because that's a creature can't be omnipresent. But we are talking about, about love. We are talking about uh, immortality, which is gifted to us. Um, so those incommunicable attributes we don't get the communicable ones arguably we do, and to the extent that we participate in the divine life as a human creature, it changes us. And and we would more traditionally, you know, and more it's more appealing in the West. We would simply talk about it as probably Christ-likeness.
0: And as you define this notion of theosis, it seems that there could be a kind of confusion about creation and creator, um, which what we might call the creator creation distinction. Um, so can you say a little bit about how theosis doesn't uh, uh, make, or doesn't uh, overcome this uh, clear distinction between God, the creator, and humans, his creation?
1: Yeah, yeah, and and we could say a lot more if we want to around that. Um... Uh, I'll leave that to you to open up if you want, but yeah, the image of God that so so a theological anthropology is really important in, in a robust doctrine of theosis. There has to be a, an anthropology or an understanding of the human which um, conceives it as a developmental process, not evolutionary but organic development, and and we have to articulate that as yeah becoming like God, but yeah in a mago trinitatis if you like an image of the trinity is not useful i would argue whatsoever we get into all weird stuff so if we image the trinity what part of me is the father what part of me is the son what part of me is the spirit and it it just gets into really silly stuff so an imago trinitatis is really important Um, we're created arguably in the image of the incarnate son and that's our transformational journey to become ever more like him not, not his gendered nature as a, as a male, but his personal nature as a genuine human. And so, yeah, an amago Christi as opposed to an amago Trinitatis would be how most advocates of theosis would want to argue it. Um, and I think that's really important because if the humanity of Christ, it always has to be central in this discussion. Otherwise, again, we bypass the humanity of Christ and again collapse that creator creature distinction And then we become uh, fourth and fifth and sixth members of the Godhead, which we, yeah. So it's really important.
0: It seems like theosis might be something of an Eastern doctrine uh, rather than a Western doctrine. Can you say a little something about T.F. Torrance and his relationship to uh, Orthodox theology?
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, very early in his career, he was... um, he was arguing for a form of theosis that was acceptable in in a Western context. He very early on in his career had significant involvement with with Eastern Orthodoxy uh, and a number of key individuals. Yeah, p- more from the Greek than the Russian uh, or- Orthodoxy. And he came to have great respect for for that tradition. Uh, Athanasius, he always said, was his favorite theologian, even even more favorite than Bart. Um, he, he said, "I would like to be an Athanasian." rather than a Barty, and if it'll have to be anything um, he preferred of course simply to be a Christian but uh, th- so that's important and he did predate as you said um, the retrieval of theosis in in Western figures. Um, he wasn't unaware of it and so he, he he's an early uh, help I think along the way but he did predate predate a lot of the, the robust work that's been done now. So, so like you rightly said, theosis is simply not an Eastern doctrine, if that means not a Western doctrine, it's a Christian doctrine. And and with scholarships finally won that argument convincingly, Torrance predated that um, to, to some extent, but also paved the way for some of it, yeah.
0: And the work that I'm talking with you about today is uh, basically centered around the theology of T.F. Torrance, um, who you are sort of a a pretty uh, um, well-known reader and uh, uh, student of his theology. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, why T.F. Torrance and the background of T.F. Torrance?
1: So Torrance was uh, born 1913 in Chengdu, China, to to missionary parents uh, from Scotland. Uh, They were out there. His father was uh, uh, apparently a a legendary missionary figure. There's uh, just recently, the last uh, four or five years, a a major um, museum set up in Chengdu in in honour of his father, which is pretty remarkable, really. Um, And so they lived there for a number of years, came back home to Scotland, to Edinburgh for schooling. Uh, And there was uh, the Boxer Rebellion and other things made it difficult to stay. His father went back uh, to China without them for about a decade, as was often the case back then, and then um, came back and settled in Edinburgh. So born 1913, uh, China spent the rest of his career, life and career in Edinburgh, working at uh, Edinburgh University as the, the chair in Dogmatics, one of the two chairs in Dogmatics. Died in 2007. So not, not too long ago, I guess, at a ripe old age, published over 650 pieces. So, I mean, you know, massive output and across a number of spheres. Um, so he's, he's well known by different people for different things. He, uh, dogmatics, uh, never wrote a systematic theology, but wrote uh, lots and lots of books contributing to dogmatics. Um, uh, the chief uh, interpreter of Bart in the English-speaking world uh, in the first half of the 20th century, at least, and no one uh, for his translation work as much as anything. So, uh, chief chief translator and editor of Bart's dogmatics, church dogmatics, into English, and Calvin's commentaries into English. Him and his brother uh, did that, along with a whole bunch of other other uh, works from from German and uh, and some older Scottish works. So, lots of editorial. Significant in the um, ecumenical movement early on, um, tried to work towards the unification of the Church of Scotland and the Church of England. His wife was a Church of Scotland, uh, Church of England uh, Anglican, uh, so tried to work a long time there. And then, very early on in his career, uh, particularly through Edinburgh and just the connections that 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 has to uh, as a univer- as a world class university. Very quickly, came to associate with significant uh, Eastern Orthodox students, who then went on to become bishops, patriarchs, um, senior clerics, and through those lifelong relationships, he ended up being a proto presbyter of the uh, Ethiopian uh, Orthodox Church, which is the the highest honour for a non cleric, and and he uh, received a, a, a like a large uh, cross. Uh, metal cross necklace, which he would often wear around the place and parade. Uh, he he liked that sort of thing apparently, and um, then had a number of research assistants throughout his his career as a professor of theology. Um, people like John Zizioulas and others, um, George Dragas, who were just significant Orthodox theologians. Um, so they were working with him uh, at a very uh, early stage of their career. And, and so all of those all of those um, factors and then Torrance was a patristics um, um, reader uh, let's say a patristics reader rather than patristic scholar might be fair uh, and he just very quickly reading in, in original languages uh, very quickly um, found an Athanasius the the, the the hero of the early church and, and then that um, sort of basil Athanasius Cyril that that line he found was a what we would call today a pro- Nicene theology. Um and he and he very quickly saw that there was a third school between Alexander and Antioch. He talks about this third school. Not not that I think literally he thought there was a, a literal third school, but there was what, you know, after Lewis his work, we would call a pro-Nicene core. And and his instincts were just finally attuned. And so he found in the Greek, uh the the Greek theologians particularly, uh, I, I think the um the the heart of the gospel, I think, as he would articulate it, and then he he spent the rest of his career. Uh, I think it's a bit blunt, but arguing that when the best of East and West comes together, we've got a coherent and mature Christianity, um, and so that ecumenical missional impulse never left him. Yeah, now that's you know a lot of biased judgments in, in that that uh, sort of narrative, but but I think that's yeah that, that, that's fair mostly, Um, and then Torrance, uh, T.F. Torrance, the whole family went on to be this theological dynasty. um, He was the older of three brothers. His uh, younger brother, James, went on to become professor of theology, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, other places. His uh, then younger brother again, David, studied. They all studied with Bart. They all did their their doctorates with him and Basil, Uh, and then um, David uh, came back and remained a Church of Scotland minister his whole life. Um, Thomas Torrance's son, Ian Torrance, went on to be a theologian, professor, um, president of Princeton Seminary, vice, uh, what is he, the chancellor of Aberdeen University, I think, at the moment in his retirement. And um, James Torrance, his son, went on to become, uh, Alan Torrance went on to become professor of theology, famously at St. Andrews, before that King's College of Gunton. And now their children uh, and Torrance's grandchildren are occupying theological posts. So it's a real dynasty. Yeah.
0: So moving on from T.F. Torrance, can you say a little something about whether or not this teaching of uh, theosis is Platonic and what that might mean?
1: Yeah, the the, the um uh, people, uh, other people have talked about theosis in terms of trying to trying to work out some sort of taxonomy because there are different doctrines of theosis. And uh, Norman Russell, uh, Oxford professor. Um, patristic scholar he even argues convincingly shows that even within a single author in the early church there are there are different doctrines of theosis within a single author um because some some of them were more overt than others so so yeah when we're talking about doctrines we need to then sort of just have some sort of taxonomy or division so uh, one again it's a reasonably blunt tool but it's 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 useful is that there are uzianic and hypostatic, versions, Uzianic from this Greek term Uzia or substance, Uh, and that's where the idea is that we are absorbed into the substance of the deity, and that's a very pantheistic uh, uh, model. We find it in some Eastern religions outside of Christianity, we find it in the ancient uh, Near East. Um, Platonism has a a form of it, arguably uh, in a very different way, and that's, that's not what Torrance is buying into. And that's not what he sees the early church, particularly that that Basil, Athanasius, Cyril, that sort of line. He doesn't see them buying into that at all. So the other model, the hypostatic model, is the personal model where we use the, the hypostatic union, the, the two natures of Christ, one person with two complete natures, where neither of the natures is corrupted by the other or changed by the other. So real human, real divine, one person. So that hypostatic model is the, the, to use an language, that's that's after Torrance, but that's the sort of model that he's developing in his theology and trying to retrieve, whereby the the humanity, the incarnation of Christ, is the all important factor. Only Jesus Christ fully unites humanity and divinity without obliterating either, and and that so any subsequent theosis or divinization of human creatures is only through the, can we say, the mechanism or the instrument of being united to the humanity of Christ. And then only in that union do we participate in the divine nature because Christ is the eternal son. If we ever step out of the son, even if that were possible, then we'd either be back into an ozianic model, which is, you know, becoming a drop in the great ocean that is God and losing our identity becoming him, Um or, or the notion would just cease to have any coherence. So he's very much this, what we might call hypostatic model, Christological model, taking the incarnation uh, of the eternal son who assumes a human nature um, without ceasing to be God, and it's in our union with him. And that's where he finds the tradition utterly compelling and convincing and, and, and makes sense of texts like 2 Peter 1.4, which talks about being participants of the divine nature, and then Jesus talks, quoting the Psalms, that, uh, about us being gods, about any any ethical transformation and then ontological transformation, uh, ontos being our being. While we never cease to be creatures in Torrance's work, we, we're not automatically persons, technically. There's only one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And he's the only fully personal person because to be a person, he would argue, again, from much of the Greek uh, tradition, is to be a being in, in perfect relationship. First of all, with God, then with each other in all of creation. So only Christ occupies that space. Only Christ is the human, perfectly related to God, acceptable in his sight, able to see God and live, etc. cetera, um, and raised uh, immortal, etc. So to the extent that we become like Christ, In Christ Jesus by the Spirit, we become personalized. And so Christ in the Spirit, Christ becomes the personalizing person. And our flesh is deified only in the sense that it is transformed progressively into the likeness of Christ. Again, not gender. That's not what's important. We retain male or female, but um, the human nature. So perfect, perfect mind, perfect will, perfect emotions, perfect devotion to God, perfect worship. Not my will be done, but yours. When when we get to you know those types of positions, um, and that's only possible in Christ. Therefore, the creator creature distinction is always at play and is never transgressed. Unlike in, as we say in some non Christian versions of it. Um, so even in say perhaps some forms of modern Mormonism, which teach some form of theosis the language there of becoming little gods occupying effectively your own planet and being your own deity on it. That's a bit crude, but but that idea is never in a Christian version of theosis because that transcends the creator creature distinction. Yeah. And it's, it's just a fantastic idea. I mean, Irenaeus starts, you know, I mean, scripture obviously starts it, but Irenaeus, yeah, sort of, clar- well, well, significantly, um, is an impetus for that this tarsus this eternal growth and development I, I i mean it's a i think it's just one of the more stunning ideas that modern theology uh forgot and now contemporary theology is reclaiming um i mean john Beer's little book he's got a little a uh, little picture book becoming human it's just you know it's just brilliant um so for in torrance's language uh Torrence often like, like a lot of theologians, he'll develop his own language for stuff because he, he you know he can't find any language that's acceptable, so he makes up his own. And a lot of theologians do that, which makes it at some point impenetrable for, for lay people to then access it, and so we need to translate. But he has this phrase, uh, I mean, I've used it so much, I like it, but when I first came upon it, it's pretty clumsy, but the idea is brilliant. He believes that every human creature is created in the image of Christ, the incarnate Christ. That includes Adam and Eve, so it even works retrospectively. And we're created, as you say, with this um this intended goal or telos to become Christ-like, to become mature, to be perfect and then perfecting, because perfect is an a static state, although that's how English tends to use it. And so Torrance has this phrase that the Holy Spirit indwells all people. The Holy Spirit's the, the human correlate to the, to the divine spirit. So it's unclear, really, if Torrance even thinks humans have a spirit other than the Holy Spirit. Um, and I quite like this idea. It's bartian that we are embodied souls and enfolded soul bodies, and the, that the Holy Spirit animates us, gives us life, but also gives us spiritual life. And so Torrance talks about the spirit being the the, the transcendental determination of every human, and 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 what he means is that. Uh, another language that religious impulse that almost every human certainly every human society has to transcend to be bigger to be to leave a legacy to to have children to grow, to develop to have society. He goes this is a deeply Christian impulse given to us by the spirit and uh, it's only ever f- rightly fulfilled when it's directed towards the triune God. When we misdirect that transcendental determination towards ourselves, towards creaturely things, it becomes idolatry and self-destructive. You know, I guess what what Luther would call that incurvatus, say that curved in on ourselves. But when it's rightly ordered, then th- this is this finds its its ultimate telos or goal in being a participant in the divine nature. He didn't go on to elaborate uh, uh, too much of this, but even into eternity which the early church certainly does elaborate on. And they have those nice sort of, um, you know, phrases uh, around the resurrection being the eighth day of creation, where it's a recapitulation. And then, you know, so Torrance buys into that, I think, and he has to, <clears throat> I think rightly, because I think it's biblical, but um, because the, the progress of theosis doesn't stop at the resurrection. It continues. Um uh, these three remain, says St. Says Paul, our uh, faith, hope, and love. We know how faith and love remain. People are stumped by how hope does because we think, well, as soon as we get to heaven, all our hopes are fulfilled. That's clearly not the case. Uh, lots of our hopes are fulfilled, and then we're given more things to hope for, and they're fulfilled, and then more things, and that's why eternal life will never be boring. Um, again, maybe this is a pill for our modern anxiety today, but um, Eternal life will never be boring because we will never exhaust who God is and the enjoyment of that, and that's part of theosis. Now, Torrance, being uh, situated historically, being a follower of Bart, his eschatology's a little thin, we might say. Um, I'm a Baptist, evangelical, and Reformed, so you know uh, we, we we might have a too thick eschatology, perhaps, but um, he doesn't unpack a lot of that in great detail but he unpacks it enough that others can can then pick up on. And he does that over a couple of volumes of sermons, particularly.
0: Some of what you're saying reminds me of the conversation that we had with Hans Beresma. So I'll reference that for listeners if they want to go back and listen to that, because it seems like there's a lot of connection there with what he does and with what you're writing in Torrance.
1: Yeah yeah i mean hans's work's brilliant um lovely guy and, and that book is really helpful um at the other end of the spectrum uh if that's high academic work um i, I published a book a few years back through whitman stock or uh, simply called heaven an inkling of things to come where uh it's the only work i've, I've really written for a popular audience to make it entirely accessible to families particularly so that to resource them discussing these things around the dinner table um and this whole idea of perpetual human progress in Christ is just it's just a brilliant idea um we won't go into it but you know asking questions around the dinner table for instance um we don't know what time is like in eternity and and uh, who knows but you know it, it, if there's anything like like temporal time now cuz we're embodied what what might it mean to have your 1 millionth birthday uh, oh well maybe a big cake and a fire hazard but what about your one millionth and one that seems a bit depressing because you've got a million years before another big birthday and so that that notion of time as simply a sequential moment after another sequential moment is is actually reasonably oppressive to many people particularly in our current context where we experience time um as as a negativity erodes us you know I, i'm i'm 50 this year. So, you know, uh, the body starts to feel the effects of time and it degenerates. Um, but in a, in an unfallen, in a completely redeemed kingdom of God, where time doesn't have those, uh, those types of effects, then the temporal succession and aging takes on very little meaning. We need to replace it with things like, I think maturity, we will continue to mature, through experimentation, adventure, investigation, worship, learning, and and that then becomes really inviting and enticing. And the vision of God isn't something that, again, it's not a it can't be a static thing like some of the Catholic tradition. You know, Aquinas it's it's you see nothing and you hear nothing. It's it's mute. Well, I, I no, sorry, I, I can't I can't accept that. Um, I, I don't think that's that's the the pinnacle of worship. Um, I think in resting, this biblical idea, this resting from anything that opposes the will of God in the present, in heaven, rest is characterized by intense activity, but it's activity that gives us energy and joy and delight, not saps us of everything like it does now. Yeah, There's more to be said, but Hans's book is brilliant.
0: Um, can you tell us a little bit about whether or not this uh, theology really fits within the Reformed tradition? Like, what does it mean for it to be Reformed? Because uh, this isn't normally what people think of when they think of Reformed theology.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a good question, and it does meet resistance from from um, well, not just some Reformed, but but you know, other traditions have their own resistors as well. So, in looking at that, in particularly through Torrance and and then his successors. There's nothing in reform theology that that um, that prescribes you can't have a doctrine of theosis. So uh, it depends again on how one wants to define reformed. And if we're more historically, you know, you're a patristic scholar, so you, you'll appreciate if we're more historically aware, then the better. Um, unfortunately, I think a number of um, modern contemporary. North American reform people, uh, they're just not very historically aware, a number of them. And so what they think they mean by reform bears very little resemblance to, um, to Calvin or any of his successors, um, bears, bears very little resemblance to the creeds and confessions of the reformed churches. It's just a very modern North American invention. So if we cut behind that, um, one of the central features of being reformed, Is that there's this emphasis upon justification as a forensic declaration? Um, Now, theosis is often misunderstood by uh, people to be one part of the ordo salutis or the order of salvation. So, some will say it's justification or theosis at that point. Others will say, if the in the Wesleyan or holiness tradition, it's theosis replaces the idea of sanctification. Others still uh, think, oh no, no, theosis is, is a different idea for glorification. Well, it's neither and none of those. Uh, if it's a doctrine of self if it's a doctrine of theosis, it's it's the playground within which all of those features exist. It's not one of those features. Um, so if we think of an order of salvation, theosis is the circle that encompasses the whole thing, it's not one piece of that or different metaphor. It's not a piece of a jigsaw puzzle, it's the picture that puzzle makes, if that makes sense. So as Torrance uses it, he finds nothing in his reformed heritage that that prescribes you can't adopt theosis as the governing principle. In fact, everything within it arguably lends itself towards it. Now, people like Bruce uh, McCormick and others think differently, but they're yet to really show, or convincingly show, why that would be the case. Um, Justification can be both declaration and deification. It doesn't have to be either or. Uh, And what we're finding today is someone like Michael Horton, who's as reformed as you get, Um, uh, a significant reformed thinker, uh, historically astute. So he's consistently arguing now for theosis as as a reformed doctrine He's going back to people like Calvin and others in the tradition and finding it, uh, as others are doing, finding it in the tradition because it's a Christian doctrine, not, again, some weird archaic Eastern thing. Um, And he's even adopting, I don't agree, but he's even adopting the essence energies distinction, Michael Horton, as a way to safeguard this creator creature. Now, I personally, in Torrance, didn't do that. Um, I don't think we want to do that. Um, But that's interesting that even some contemporary very conservative, reformed and now adopting it quite freely. So his uh, his little, well, not little, it's large. His systematic theology, the Christian faith, Michael Horton's got some really perceptive stuff around theosis. As a um, the only pushback might be it, it, theosis isn't as a ro- isn't as robust in in his work as it might be in Torrance and others who use it as an architectonic or a structuring motif. Um, but it's more than simply a, a, a loose metaphor for for Horton, so that that's encouraging, I think. Well, I think I think what he what he saw in Athanasius uh, above all was the way that Athanasius used Homoousius, and as and from that one word, his entire theology, if you like, f- branched out. And and Torrance, I think, just latched onto that like a bulldog and and for him exactly the same thing the the homoousian, yeah it arguably is another structural motif um and and through that the entire gospel the doctrine of the trinity everything unfolds from that um and so he would overtly talk about um these sort of uh, after Einstein, he had in his office, apparently, uh, his, his study, two pictures on the wall. One, one uh, 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 icon of Athanasius; the other, a uh, pencil sketch of Einstein. These were his two, two sort of heroes, um, for different reasons. And so, uh, for Einstein, this uh, idea of of the theory of relativity—objects in relation to other things—are uh, uh, how you describe objects in modern science. And he says this is deeply theological. This is, of course, this is who God is. Um, God is not a dictionary definition of the unmoved mover, any Platonic or or Aristotelian mumbo jumbo. Um, it's three persons in perfect relationship revealed through Christ and Holy Scripture by the Spirit. Therefore, Perichoresis was the, the higher scientific um, definition for Him from which everything unfolded. Only because at the lower level Homoousius allowed it, um, or allowed it, dictated it effectively, and then at the lowest level, that of experience or or um, uh, or worship—that's why we 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 come to the Lord's table the way we do. That's why we baptize. That's why we worship in the fullest sense of it. And so these three levels for him, yeah, that, that's another way to structure his, his work overtly. Um, and and I think Theosis. Yeah, I mean, people haven't really, uh, you know. I think when did I write this? Two thousand nine. Um, it was a doctoral dissertation. Um, I mean, it hasn't gone on to convince lots of people that this is one of his key structural motifs, but at the same time, there there isn't an article or a book that argues against it. Um, I've certainly had lots of conference discussions, um, and I'm yet to see or hear a convincing argument against. Um, Other suggestions are grace. Grace occupies that. Uh, I'm not sure that's true. Um, (laughs) the, The debate goes on. And I don't think it's that important. Uh, people can have num- a number of of fundamental or key um, motifs. Yeah, it's a bit like the, the 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 argument, the silly argument over Calvin's theology, and doesn't have a single structuring motif. And, and, and every generation throws up a, a different one. It's like, ah, oh, that's not quite how things work. Yeah.
0: Can you say a little something about uh, what? Uh, an idea that you have or a truth that you now uh, believe to be true that you have changed in your lifetime
1: yeah. oh yeah um, so i was brought up in a reasonably conservative probably looking back i'd probably call it fundamentalist open brethren Uh, Christian brethren uh, background. Uh, And there's a lot of good about that, you know, high view of scripture and morality. There's a lot of bad about that, bit of a fortress mentality and the world's evil. Um, But uh, it was also a very dispensational upbringing, which I I simply, I never really accepted, but didn't know why and and now completely reject uh, and know why. Um, And so I was brought up with a very complementarian view of, of gender. Um, males could be leaders, pastors, uh, head of the household. Um, they they functioned um, uh, in an authority role, and wives were were not pastors, not leaders, not elders, not teachers. They could do Sunday school and mission, pretty much. Um, I've, I've done a complete 180 on that. Uh, I'm now a, 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 an express and open egalitarian. And I mean, you know, both life life circumstances. Uh, my wife's a, a pastor of a Baptist church, senior pastor of a Baptist church. So, you know, I'm clearly committed to, to an egalitarian view. But what changed my mind is as an evangelical, if the Bible clearly teaches it, then like it or not, we have to accept it until proven otherwise. And so even on doctrines and um, positions where, we have pretty robust convictions. We always have to be open to re-looking at the evidence and allowing God to speak through scripture. And um, I was on a bus at one of the uh, American Academy of Religion conferences in, in, uh, I think this one was in Chicago. And um, and I was on a bus with a guy uh, going to the conference from our hotel. Hi, how are you? you yeah, blah, blah, blah. And this is a guy called Don Payne. And he'd he'd written a book, which was his PhD dissertation, One in Christ. And he looked at uh, all the text on headship in the New Testament and then did an exhaustive study, took on Wayne Grudem's work and bedded it by several hundred years, uh, looking at before and after this sort of stuff. And completely refuted um, the Grudem, Piper, um, Bruce Weir type type complementarianism so he told me about his book i said i'd read it um two years later i saw him at conference Said i've read your book uh, i've worked through those texts looked at your evidence i'm utterly convinced yeah i think i think i can clearly preach those those texts from first timothy and others uh in an egalitarian way that does more justice to the text uh i'm convinced i'm an egalitarian much to my wife's delight <laughs> yes. Ah, oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. Took me two years to read to work through it, but still. Yeah.
0: And how does uh, I have to ask about Augustine because I wrote my dissertation about Augustine? Uh, T.F. Torrance is very critical of him. Uh, can you say a little bit about the relationship between Augustine and Torrance?
1: He, he, he a bit like what you said about Schleiermacher earlier, uh, when he when he read the Christian faith, he saw this what he calls architectonic, this overall structure which was just beautiful, pristine. Uh, unfortunately, the content he found rubbish, and, and many of us might agree. Um, and but but the the there was a lot there to like. Uh, now this is a similar reaction that um, that others have had before him. Um, when he comes to Augustine, so through a number of works, you've got to dig for it. But um, he's reading Augustine um, semi regularly, uh, uh, and he regularly read through the Church Fathers in, in Greek. Um, And we know this because when he sold his library, his personal library, uh, the annotations, uh, apparently annotations riddled all the works. Now, um, I don't know where all these books have ended up. We all sort of, oh, who brought, you know, uh, someone needs to track down who brought it where they've ended up. But but we know from from stuff that, yeah. So he, he does find in Augustine, I think it's fair to say, a Christian who understands as other Christians do, the beauty of God and how a life oriented towards devotion and worship to God is a life worth living. And he really appreciates that, I think. So he sees him as a brother in Christ, but then you will hardly ever find a, a, a nice reference to Augustine outside of that. And so he predates, of course, the the retrieval of Augustine against anti-Augustine deniers Um And Gunton, who was a younger contemporary, you know, we find the same thing. So this is what I think is happening. Um, There are certain – Torrance was not interested in close readings of patristic texts for the sake of um, patristic scholarship. He he, he wasn't interested. And what he was interested in is the the tenor, if you like, of people's ideas – but it's the ideas, not the people or their articulation he could have cared about. So he'll often not put references or footnotes, and you're like, what was he reading? Who's he referring to? It's so frustrating. We couldn't, we're couldn't. we not allowed to get away with this today. Um, so he tends to see uh, history as contemporaries, and he doesn't bother dotting his I's and crossing his T's, because for him, the idea is what's important, not don't bother me with the details. <laughs> now, again, for patristic scholars, quite rightly, this is not good enough. Um, and that meant he, I. this is what I think he was doing. In, in the early church, uh, Athanasius and others, if you didn't agree with their view, you were an Arian. Didn't matter whether you are an Arian or not, you were just an Arian. This becomes a catch-all phrase for anyone who disagrees with this pro nicene theology. Um, and there were Arians, there were semi-Arians, and there were non-Arians, but you're all Arian. It's a guilt-by-association type tactic. This is what Torrance does all the time. There's a, there's a thing called the Latin heresy, which uh, ingrained dualisms he finds in the Christian tradition which he would argue come from outside the tradition, out from Platonism and, and 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 other other forces, which we need to eradicate. And Augustine becomes the poster child, the whipping boy for every dualism ever invented in the history of the church. It all goes back to Augustine. And you go looking at an Augustine, you are like, seems a bit unfair, uh, and it is. I think no, no, I don't think anyone would justify that that today. Um, what we would want to say is, yeah, okay, Augustine technically isn't doing this that, 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 that's 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 made clear by by you know Michelle Barnes and Lewis Hayes and the, the, you know, the rest of your guild and it's very helpful but arguably uh, the some of the ideas implicit in their works their successes went on to develop did end up in radical dualisms which are deeply problematic and need to be eradicated so, Augustine shouldn't be the whipping boy uh, uh, for that, Um, but the ideas that Torrance is articulating, many would argue, me included, are still good ideas and good arguments. They just that that, that today they would need to have a more refined and better historical basis. Gunton's the same. Um, I mean, savaged and in some sense, rightly. For again, Gunton's just the worst of the worst. Uh, it's like he's some evil—I don't know—heretic. Um, again, I—I I don't think that's probably how he personally saw him. He just saw the ideas that might have a genesis in 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 Augustine. It's the ideas which are evil, uh, evil in quotation marks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a way to in the Trinitarian faith. In the republished version, I do a sort of a lengthy introduction trying to argue in a more scholarly and and articulate way um, how we can retrieve Torrance's arguments without having to buy into the rhetoric um, that he used. Um, But I I reckon, I believe that uh, he had Athanasius in mind. You don't agree with me, you're an Arian. You don't agree with me, you're an Augustinian, it's the Latin heresy. And and if some of the audio you're talking about, this is what he does, someone asks a question, oh, Augustine, Latin heresy. And they're like, they've probably never heard of the bloomin', what are you talking about? Yeah. So it, it doesn't defend him entirely, but I think it, it perhaps explains his technique, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. And again, and you can. And again, it's not to defend uh, the argument that Augustine's the problem. But um, it, what's really interesting, I think, is that, again, the ideas that Torrance is picking up on, I just think are entirely right. Um, he just has, he just uses augustine as as a rhetorical tool which I, again we 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 can't do today um and we wouldn't want to we'd want to uh, i was going to say be better that sounds condescending but i mean it's just we, we, you know it's different we we wouldn't do that today we'd make the argument and um we, we'd have to do the historical detailed work as well um but um Lewis uh not lewis is um Khaled Anatolios, just just you know released I think last was it last year Daphication through the cross uh, yeah twenty twenty Daphication through the cross uh, just a staggeringly good work I think and what he's arguing in the beginning is that um, with these models of the atonement that we have all inherited he goes they they all undermine or undercut the fundamental um, learnings of the patristic era that our soteriology is built upon our Christology and Trinitarian theology. We get to models of the atonement. There's no Trinity or and Christology that, that's, that's at work. You know, the hypostatic union, homoousias, plays no role in any of them. Perichoresis isn't, isn't a controlling influence anywhere. And so you do have uh, an atonement theology almost completely separate from your incarnation theology. That's the dualism Torrance identified as nonsense, and he traces it, yeah, back to, again, a bit unfairly, back to, to Latin theology, starting with Augustine. Um, Augustine wasn't trying to do that, but there probably is an argument that implicit in parts of his works, there is that. that Again, he's not doing the dualism, that's, that's anachronistic, but how could we could get heat where we are today, where we divorce Christology and Trinity from our atonement theory, which is ridiculous? And it takes someone like um, another patristic scholar like like Anatolios to to sort of try and correct the ballast, which is really helpful. And who is one of his key Western advocates that he goes to in that book? T. F. Torrance, not not defending his reading of Augustine, but defending his reading of the tradition of ideas and particularly this vicarious uh, humanity and vicarious repentance. So I, I think that's fascinating and helpful. Um, he is a good patristic scholar, not not doing the bad patristics, if you like, but doing the good argument and seeing. yeah, look, we wouldn't do it like Torrance did, and we're not pretending we would, um, but the actual theological ideas still have merit and, and worth.
0: And how did you come to the study of T.F. Torrance?
1: Yeah it's a oh, what's the short story um we're all complex people aren't we sometimes by design and sometimes by historical accident um so so again you know briefly growing up in in, in a dispensational context but, but not agreeing with it entirely but not not sure why without the language to sort of you know and then um very early as a young uh, young adult just reading through um reformed works so calvin's institutes and just reading the institutes. Um, yeah, there are parts of it that are problematic, but but on the whole, it's like, oh this this is just this is my theology uh, uh, largely, this 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 pastoral because he was a pastor, this this pastoral systematic theology, if we can call it that. Um, and then uh, so I finished my undergraduate studies uh, in in theology and historical theology, major double major in those. And then coming into a research master's, so I did a two-year thesis, uh, re- research only. It was an unusual master's program uh, back then. It, it ceased to exist, but um, basically it was a, 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 a 80, 90,000-word thesis. So it was basically a doctorate. Um, and I worked on spirit Christology because I had questions coming out of dispensational background around the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, and so that, that resourced a lot of those questions and pushed me back into the early church. Uh, I'm not a patristic scholar, but an avid uh, reader and learner of the patristics, and so it pushed me into into um, uh, people like Athanasius and Irenaeus and others. And again, just I mean, they're just so readable. Just and then, thankfully, Saint Vlad's are doing really nice, accessible <laughs> critical, uh, you know, uh, publication. Oh, that's that's great. Oh, it's a great series. It's, it's just so good. And so um, at the end of that, then coming into PhD work, I wanted to do something that would be um, obviously specific, but would resource a, a teaching career. And uh, as an evangelical, the, the I'm in a law college, so it's an evangelical college, a bit like a seminary, effectively, in your context. Um, so it's confessional, um, very interdenominational, Um But with all these evangelical, Pietistic commitments, you know the 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 um, Gospels—not theory—it actually is there for practical means. It's it's worship, and so uh, so that's where I came across Torrance. Reasonably, he didn't really appear in my undergrad. Uh, I came across him in my master's uh, work, and and started to read him there, and then for the PhD. Um, this idea of theosis had presented itself as a natural follow-on from spirit Christology, and uh, looking for a way to do that, and then uh, again, I was reading Torrance, and it just appears everywhere. It just keeps cropping up, explicitly, implicitly, as a theme, as a motif. It's like it's everywhere. And I'm like, why is this? There's a, there's a thesis here, and so so that's what pushed me into theosis and T.F. Torrance. He he was a uh, influential enough figure, and had written enough. And so post the PhD, um, just because he's got such a big body of work, he just continues to resource, I think, my thinking, even where I depart from him at, at key places, uh, different areas. Um, I just keep coming back as a lifelong reader of Torrance. And I, I think everyone, I mean, that would be my advice for you know, particularly younger theologians who, um, trying to find someone like an Augustine, an Athanasius, you know, a, a T.F. Torrance, I mean, Karl Barth, Aquinas, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I mean, whoever you, you gel with, um, someone that's robust enough to, um, to resource basically a career, it doesn't mean you just stick with them and, and sometimes you fundamentally radically disagree with them, um, but they're just good guides along the way. Um, they're mature, they're, they're ecumenical, um, and and so I just find Torrance a good guide, even when I disagree. Um, and then through the things like the Torrance Fellowship and others, it's a it's a growing community of of network scholars. Um, I mean, C.S. Lewis is another one like that. My current work is now uh, trying to produce a couple of books around theosis in the thought of C.S. Lewis. And again, um, if you pick up almost anything he ever wrote, and you you st- you think. What does he say about theosis? You'll find it everywhere, overtly and implicitly. Uh, he wrote the introduction to Athanasius on the Incarnation, obviously the republication. Now, if any of your listeners know how he came to write that introduction, I'd love to know because I'm trying to research uh, how, how he got that invite. So if anyone uh, wants to email you and, uh, and then you can pass that on, that'd be great. But So, so that's, that's how I got into theosis and to T.F. Torrance uh, as a Baptist. Um, I'm an ecumenical theologian uh, with Baptist commitments. I'm reformed in my sensibilities. And um, what I find attractive in Torrance and others like him is that you can uh, be committed to your tradition and also be committed to the Catholic lowercase, to the Catholic Christian tradition at the same time. And in fact, that sort of receptive ecumenism is better than sort of watered down low and lowest common denominator ecumenism uh, where we come as brothers and sisters in christ to the table more in common than we don't and now let's talk about our differences and i'll actually learn a whole lot and and hopefully others will too i might change my mind on stuff i might not but uh, but that's okay because it's still worthwhile um so so that's why partly i find torrance useful as a guide in some of that um now i'm talking about his written work not not Specifically, perhaps if you listen to his audio, um, he, he he did not suffer fools lightly and often took no prisoners. Um, I'm not not sure that's something to emulate directly. Um, James's younger brother was a lot more, shall we say, pastoral and and and, and charitable in, in discourse. So, um, like Thomas Torrance in articulation and like James Torrance in delivery, you know, and then his brother. The younger brother David's still still alive. Just the most delightful Christian minister, retired with a heart and passion. You know, so (laughs) some combination of all three, I think, makes us really good, well-rounded Christians. And 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 I find that resources what I'm doing. Um, Of course, you know, uh, whenever you're for something, you're against other things. So, yeah, uh, a bunch of perhaps classical Calvinists. um, Yeah, have ongoing issues and debates with, but the best of them, you know, um, the Kevin Van Hoosers and others are, um, I can't say they're personal friends that I'm in New Zealand, a long way away, but you know, at conferences and in correspondence, uh, are just very generous and gracious and helpful correspondents who I greatly respect and admire. Um, and we just respectfully can agree to disagree on stuff. And I keep reading their works for edification, um, don't know whether they read mine, but if they do, I hope it edifies them at, at some point. Um, and I think that's what 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 the best of the tradition should model for us. Yeah. So it's a sort of a long-winded way to answer your question, but I think that that that's that's at least what I pick up from the best of our you know of the tradition, and, and I think try to emulate as a theologian and a Christian. It's been my pleasure and thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it.